0: Oh boy, it's bad now, and it wasn't going to take much to make it bad, as I've been trying to tell everyone for months now. Good morning to you. Good Sunday morning. A special edition daily shot here the day after the Penguins lost Game 1 of the Stanley Cup qualifying round to the Montreal Canadiens, 3-2 in overtime on a Jeff Petrie goal a lot of long faces a lot of sad faces today probably more than anything else i would imagine that people are just kind of stunned because like there was hockey again and you just started to get used to there being hockey again and then it really really mattered and you had to go not just 0 to 60 but like 0 to 75 just as an observer well that that was it that was the scenario That's one of the many things that I'd been warning about to the consternation of a good many listeners and readers, I dare say, because they didn't like hearing the, you know, the Debbie Downer stuff, whatever. But game one was going to be scary no matter what. You're coming off four and a half months of absolutely nothing two weeks of training camp, a couple of scrimmages, and a floating exhibition against the Flyers. There's no way this was going to be a normal thing. And yet, certain aspects of it were kind of normal-ish for the Penguins early on. They just didn't get it done. The things that I warned about in no particular order. One was the obvious that carry Price is, and I will certainly stand by it this morning, the most talented goaltender in the world. It does not mean he's the best. It doesn't mean he has the best numbers. It doesn't mean he's the most consistent. It doesn't mean he doesn't get hurt. It doesn't mean he doesn't necessarily ramp it all the way up when he's playing behind a pretty mediocre Montreal roster most of the time. However, that's not what this situation is. This is a blast for a guy like that. Could you tell how much fun he was having? He was, this was like a big contest for him. He was like, bring it on, bring me your best. That's the Carey Price that players, evaluators, coaches, executives around the league fell in love with a long time ago and still see, still according to a player poll taken just last year as the best goaltender, the most talented goaltender in the NHL. The Penguins outshot Montreal 18-6 in the first period. Montreal outshot Pittsburgh in every period for the remainder of the game, including overtime 12-7. to Just throwing that in there parenthetically. But in the first period, the Penguins were all over him, all over Carey Price. Peppered him. I heard Mike Sullivan say after the game, that he was disappointed with how little traffic that they they were able to generate in front of him. That, my friends, is coach speak. I don't buy it for a second. I saw traffic. I saw people in Carrie Price's kitchen. I saw them bumping into him. I also saw him not giving up goals when that happened. All Sully's trying to do is to look ahead to Game Two and to try to send even more there because he knows that guy is going to be really tough to beat, and he was, and he won the game. I also brought up one name from the Montreal Canadiens, Non Carry Price, repeatedly, as a guy who would be the most visible to you even if he wasn't necessarily Montreal's best player. Lo and behold, Brendan Gallagher puts together a nine-shot game, and it was his drive to the net that backed off not one but two Penguins to buy room for Petrie to scooch into the middle of the slot there with that toe drag and beat Matt Murray to the far side. That was all Gallagher. He was everywhere. And then there was a third thing that I kept bringing up. And this one was more forceful than any of them. And it was this you can't lose game one. I kept saying it again and again and again. I did entire columns, entire podcasts on it because that's what you do when you have four and a half months of no sports. You have to end up repeating yourself a little bit. They couldn't lose game one. Do you know the math on this? In the NHL's history of of best-of-five series, and understandably you have to go pretty far back for this since the NHL dropped them a long time ago, the team that won game one won the series 89% of the time. 89! And I can promise you that a lot of those teams in that 89% didn't have Carey Price behind them. In baseball, which has had a lot more, obviously, best-of-five series over the years, the team that has won Game 1 has won that series 76% of the time, so it's still very, very high. I'll make this scarier still for you. And hopefully, you know what, go ahead and pass this along to the Penguins since I'm not sure they were sufficiently scared going into this. Only one team in Stanley Cup history has ever come back from being down two games to nothing in a best-of-five, and that was the Dynasty Islanders of the early 1980s. They did it once against the Washington Capitals. That's it. That's it. Once. So, the Penguins have their work cut out for them, but the first Facet of that, to my mind, is accepting the problem. Recognizing that there is a problem and admitting that there is a problem. The problem was not the Petrie goal in overtime. The problem was not really, although it sure would have made a difference, Connor Sherry missing the net on a penalty shot because Jonathan Drouin did the same thing. So those canceled out. The problem was kind of the five-on-three. When you have 92 seconds of five-on-three in a tie game and it's the third period, you'd better put one in. The Penguins had a ton of possession, a lot of looks, didn't put one in. When you have a power play, a conventional power play in overtime of game one of a best-of-five, you got to put it in. you got to score. It's not about getting great looks and... You know, we really did all the right things and whatever else. It's not that. You have to score a goal. They didn't. But the thing that they have to accept, other than picking apart little things like the ones I just mentioned, is this. Montreal, from the beginning of the second period, or maybe two or three minutes into the second period and onward, outskated the Penguins, other than Sid's line, they outskated the Penguins at virtually every turn, virtually every shift. Repeating myself again, other than when Sidney Crosby, Jake Gensel, and Connor Sherry were out there. Five on five, the Canadians outskated the Penguins and they also outshot the penguins from the second period onward and consistently so not like in spurts each single period second third and overtime the canadians outshot the penguins that's because they skated that's because they were fast they played fast they played fun they played a little bit loose but not too much they don't they're not really wired to be uh You know, old firewagon hockey, to borrow a really old Montreal hockey term. They're not that. But when they got the puck, all of their various Jesperi Kotkaniemi's, which is how I think of a lot of their team, were able to generate good authoritative rushes into the Pittsburgh zone. To the credit of the Penguins' defense, they did a lot of things to shut those guys down. But Montreal had possession. Montreal had the puck a lot. And if you go through the individual lists of everything, and I know you right now you can't even wait for me to talk about Matt Murray, and I'll get to that in the second segment, because he always deserves his own segment, and I know you'll stay tuned. What really was troublesome about this wasn't something specific. It was much more general. Montreal's got speed. They don't have a whole lot of skill. They don't have much at all to play for, but they used that speed. They played like it was shinny, like they were just trying to show somebody up. The Penguins, by comparison, were stiff, disjointed, and I thought at times panicky. Uh, a couple guys I can, I can pick right off the bat. I thought Jared McCann was that way, and I thought Patrick Hornquist was that way. Not coincidentally, they were both on a highly ineffective third line, which also, by the way, was predicted. That third line never made sense to me. So, if you're Mike Sullivan, and you accept, and I mean really accept, which I'm not sure he did, and I'll get into that in a second segment. If you accept... That more things went wrong than just some lack of opportunity or just we ran into a hot goalie or didn't get into his face enough. Then you actually have to be thinking. That doesn't mean executing. Thinking about possible changes going into game two Monday night. Old school hockey, you know, the way things have been for years and years and years. Throw it out the window. It doesn't apply here. It doesn't apply. This is not, this was not one game of a seven-game series. It's a five-game series. The Penguins absolutely, unequivocally, positively cannot lose game two. They cannot lose game two. So whatever maneuvers you're contemplating, do not save them for game three. I'll start with that, and then I'm going to make... A couple of points, a couple that I would at least strongly consider. As we're all aware, camp was really tight. Scrimmages were really tight. The exhibition was just a farce. So, the only real firm evidence that you have of players' readiness is who showed best through the bulk of camp and the scrimmages. And as I wrote at the time from Cranberry, watching this team with my own eyes, two of their five best performers at any position were Sam Lafferty and Evan Rodriguez. Am I suggesting here that Lafferty and Rodriguez would have won game one if they were in? No, okay. I'm saying that if you're looking at situations where you could use a change or a spark or something that looks better than what you saw last night, then this is the time to make it. If someone or people that are in my business or fans come down on you as a head coach for panicking after one game or worried about sending the wrong signals, no, 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 it's a pandemic. Everything is changed. Everything is different. The worst thing you can do if you're the head coach is to hold your best cards for Game 3. Figure out what it is that went wrong in Game 1 and act on it. I didn't like Jared McCann's game. I didn't like Jared McCann's camp. I didn't like Jared McCann's last 22 games of the regular season. I could break down film from this Game 1 and show you multiple examples of where he got the puck and then went all headless chicken and looking around left, right, left right. What do I do? What do I do? Do um I should I do this? Should I do that? Do I even belong out here? I don't even know what's going through his head anymore. But there's no way you're not still carrying a twenty-two game goalless streak. Now twenty-three. Patrick Hornquist, I'm not sure what to say about because Patrick Hornquist is a different breed. Patrick Hornquist absolutely has to be on your team, on your bench in a playoff situation. I just didn't like any aspect of what that line was doing in general. It never made sense to me. Marlowe made a couple of nice passes, but he wasn't going to be an impact player on that line. And you're missing the glue there. Something has to, If you're going to insist on Marlowe and Hornquist as being your third-line wingers, you have to have something in the middle that makes sense. You have to have someone like an Evan Rodriguez, who again was was doing a lot of good things regardless of who he played with in camp. For whatever it's worth, he also did really well when he was filling in for Sidney Crosby. You'll remember when Sid got hurt early on and missed a couple of scrimmages. He finished plays, made great passes in tight quarters. He was actually doing things. I have not seen that from McCann. So... I'd be surprised if there wasn't at least significant thought put into a lineup change, and I'll be at least slightly disappointed if there isn't one. This one in particular. Sam Lafferty's tougher to get in, but I don't think it's impossible to get him in. I looked at the Bluger-Tanev-Aston Reese line and wasn't impressed at all. At all. Why? Montreal had the puck every time they were on the ice. Montreal just kept the puck, and they kept skating around everybody. So all those things that the Bluger-Tanev and Aston Reese line are usually good at doing, grinding down low, whatever, I don't know that they had two shifts like that in the whole game. I'll tell you this. Montreal's defensemen and Montreal's forwards aren't going to be catching Sam Lafferty big dude who can fly and who can pop in a couple of goals, and who can bang some bodies around too, that's also worth the fun. Now, the goaltender, and that'll come up after this. thing that stinks when you're pressuring the other team like crazy, as the Penguins were to Montreal last night in that first period with an 18-6 shots advantage, is when the other team just takes one shot and it goes in. And of course that ended up happening on the called Kanyemi goal that just bounced off of him and just bounced back in behind Murray, who was trying to scramble a little bit out of his crease to get it. Nothing really wrong there. If he makes the save, you're appreciative of it, but if it goes in, it's not one that you look at the goaltender for, but it still has kind of a deflating effect. And then the second goal happens, in which Nick Suzuki comes buzzing down the the left side on a two-on-one, sees... Murray, making himself a little bit small in net, has the glove down, beats him high glove side, and there goes Pittsburgh. (laughs) Murray's glove. Boom. He stinks. Get rid of him and everything else here. The second segment of this show is always brought to you by the Greater Pittsburgh Community Food Bank During normal times, one in seven people in southwestern Pennsylvania are food insecure, including one in five children. Not knowing where your next meal is coming from can be a scary thought. And now, during the pandemic, the need for food is that much greater. If you are in need of food assistance or if you'd like to support the Greater Pittsburgh Community Food Bank's mission of feeding people in need, eliminating hunger in our region, visit pittsburghfoodbank.org. Spell those first three words out. Pittsburgh Foodbank.org. One dollar can provide enough food for up to five meals. So Murray gets down in a two-nil hole, and he's buried by the citizens. Within 30 seconds, he makes a terrific save. I, I mean, really, really sharp. Montreal should have been ahead three nothing, just like that, uh, on a play, a, a stuff attempt from to the side of the net there got his right pad across really really impressive especially under the circumstance the Penguins end up coming back and tying on goals by Sidney Crosby and Brian Rust the Rust goal happened right after another very good Murray save he also deserves at least some credit for the Jonathan Drouin miss alright no he doesn't Drouin just completely blew that one and then the, the winning goal happens on, you know, a, a rush where Brendan Gallagher takes two guys with him and Jeff Petrie slides to the inside. He's, what, 20, 25 feet away and just nails his spot. I'm not sure that's one that you pin on the goalie either. But, but, there's still something to consider here as it relates to the goaltending. And by the way, they're not going to change to Tristan Jari for game two. Take that absolutely to the bank. Uh, Mike Sullivan will throw his hints out after a game. And when he was asked about Murray, he came back with a, I thought he was solid. Solid. Okay. So, in the head coach's eyes, he was solid. But to swing back to what I brought up a couple of times in the first segment, you can't wait till game three to send out What you really, really believe is your best, most dire, most desperate lineup. Because this is your do-or-die game, not game three. Not game three. You are not beating Carey Price three straight times after he's beaten you twice. It won't happen. This game has to be won. So I'm going to sound a little two-faced or wishy-washy when I say this, but on one hand, I understand sticking by Murray because the goaltending position is a little bit different. The goaltending position can send a panic ripple up through the whole team. Now, we can debate back and forth the merits of that. Maybe this team kind of needed a little bit of that or would need a little bit of that. But to me, it's unsettling. And there's only so much shock that the hockey culture can take. I don't know that the Penguins, uh, a veteran-laden team, at least a handful of whom have won two Stanley Cups with Matt Murray and Nett, would respond all that well. And I'm not talking about... Moaning or complaining, I'm literally just talking about their play on the ice becoming even tighter, even more jittery than they were at times in this game one. That's the concern here. It's not that they would go whining about it or whatever or that they would favor Tristan Jari or whatever. It's not that. It's just that it's an immediate big, big switch. So I I can see him... Staying with him for that reason, and at the same time, I'm going to keep saying this. The goaltender between the two that the Penguins employ, who can take the ice and has the best chance of winning a hockey game against anyone, is Tristan Jari. Jari's the better goaltender, That, and he's been that for a while. I'm not telling you anything that you haven't seen with your own eyes, and I'm not telling you anything that I haven't spoken for a good while now, Jari has a better set of pads, leg pads, especially down low along the ice, than Murray does, and I say that mostly because I think that Jari's leg pad control is among the very best in the NHL anywhere. He's got, uh, I'm going to date this reference here, but the old Rock'em Sock'em robots where when you would push the one button and the the boxer's arms would come shooting out to the side, like that. That's how I think of Jari's pads. He's that good down there, and he's better than Murray. His glove is better than Murray as well. Um, That tends to get overblown, the glove thing with Murray. Uh, The statistics don't really support it, but... You know what? When it happens, especially when it happens the way it did uh, in this game with Suzuki's wrist shot beating him up there, the narrative is hardly about to die. Nonetheless, Jari probably makes that save. There's actually a very, very good chance Jari makes that save. So think about it. Think about Jack Johnson who struggled. Maybe Yuso Ricola comes in. I don't think it'll happen either, but I'm saying just think about it. Uso has the mobility to maybe do more to counteract Montreal's speed advantage. If you want the Penguins to do something different to address that speed issue, one that Sullivan has talked about uh, very candidly about Montreal's speed, then don't just hope for it. Act on it. How about Brian Rust? Brian Rust scored a power play goal in this game. Brian Rust couldn't get on the first power play unit. Jason Zucker was over there left-handed on the left half wall. No one can explain that to me. I didn't understand that in the Flyers exhibition. I certainly didn't understand it last night. You are basically putting up a red neon sign to Carey Price that says, our guy over here is absolutely no threat to shoot. You aren't going to have to worry about anything that he does over there except distributing the puck. And Price, of course, can adjust accordingly. He he can just slide across and be that much more ready for a Malkin one-timer or whatever else might happen on the opposite side of the rink. Rust, on the other hand, can come off those boards the way Phil Kessel used to, not with the same shot, of course, that Phil had, but with a pretty decent shot and an actual shot and a threat to achieve something that might send the puck in the actual direction of the net. That'd be okay. Think about other changes. Uh, Think about whatever buttons need to be pushed. But push them now. Push them now. Don't be waiting. Don't be waiting. Don't think of this as a situation where you can hang on for game three. Nothing about this is a normal playoff. I keep bringing up the math. But how about this? If that game felt, to any of them, felt like a road game, and I would imagine that it did for both teams. I mean, there, there can't be anything comfortable about that setting. Then you don't even have the obligatory, uh, well, at least we're going home for game three and we've got our fans behind us or anything. None of that's going to happen. There isn't going to be a pick-me-up, any in 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 emotional change or upgrade For game three. Game three is just going to be another game being played where you just lost games one and two. It's going to be the same place. Do these things now. Do not blow this. Do not blow having this roster. Do not blow having these generational superstars hungry for another Stanley Cup because you waited. You waited an extra game to make the adjustments to beat the 24th seed in a 24-team tournament. The regular Daily Shot will be back tomorrow morning in its rightful place. Thank you so much for listening to this one.
1: Your front door. Your car. Your gym locker. Your bike. Your computer. Your window. Your gun. Safety is a habit. Every day you lock and secure your home, car, and everything you want to keep safe. Gun safety and responsible storage are no different and the best way to help prevent accidents, misuse, and theft. If you own a firearm, it's your responsibility to store it safely when it's not in use. Choose a system that works for you. Cable locks, lock boxes, and gun safes are some of the most effective ways to protect your family and keep firearms secured. Learn more about how to keep guns safe and secure, and find out how to get a free firearm safety kit. Visit ProjectChildSafe.org. That's ProjectChildSafe.org. If you have a firearm, own it, respect it, and secure it. Brought to you by the National Shooting Sports Foundation and the Bureau of Justice Assistance.